That's so, okay, I was actually thinking we had like 60, but 40's fine. <laughs> so um, the conference coming up, I think Rod was talking about the conference. I just, just want you to know that from the Midwest, we'll bring somewhere around 10 or 11 people. So we're doing our part to support the conference, okay? Let's open this morning in a word of prayer, and we'll ask the Lord. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to be in the Word of God. We don't take this lightly. We take it very seriously. This Word belongs to you. We want to handle it as you would handle it. We want to speak it as you would speak it, and thus we want, if it's possible, that the voice of the Lord would be heard and no voice of man. We believe that's possible through the work of the Spirit of God, and we would ask you this definite action on your part. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to a passage that's in the book of John, and it's in John chapter 20. I want to read this as an introduction. John chapter 20, and I want to read to you an account of a particular event that occurred around 1988 years ago. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. This is now John chapter 20 and verse 26. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and put the, and, and the excuse me, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, the disciples again were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Don't you hate it when somebody calls you out? <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, that's basically what the Lord Jesus was doing, right? Hey, you know, I wasn't here last time, but I really was. And I think you said something about finger, hand, hand, side, right? Wasn't that you? Go ahead. And can you imagine that moment? Do you think Thomas did it? That's amazing, right? Put your hand on that scar tissue. And in one instant, all of the events of the last 10 days, you realize that it was only 10 days ago the Lord Jesus would have been crucified. It was only a week ago that he was raised from the dead and shown himself. It's still fresh. It's still raw. It's still apparent, apparent. It's still heavy on the hearts of the individuals. It was only 10 days ago. Sometimes I, think, I feel that after we pass Resurrection Sunday, we just start the clock over and we forget that the Lord was spending the next seven weeks and then he was going to ascend into heaven. And the events that transacted in the first week were many Two sightings of the Savior and one undocumented that apparently he met with them on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
So everything would have been brought back into focus for Thomas. Everything would have, would have suddenly flooded through his soul, flooded through his heart. And what do you think would have gone through his mind as the Lord Jesus had this conversation specifically designed for Thomas himself? I wonder if he flashed back to the moments when the Lord Jesus was on the cross. I wonder if in his mind's eye he could see the very dying form of one who was there for you and me. I wondered if he could see the, the, the black sky above his head and, and the crown of thorns as, as a suffocating human being was uttering words like, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, I bring you to this point historically because on the cross there was something that happened that I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to talk to you about it because it's a prayer. It's a prayer of the Lord Jesus. It's a prayer that he uh, cited, or that he, he probably quoted, but he certainly begins his prayer with Psalm 22. And the reason why I wanted to feature his prayer this morning, because number one, I have a burden about prayer, and there's nothing more splendid than to look and see how Jesus prayed. We have a couple of prayers on, on, on record that tell us some of the content, intimate contact of his prayer. But this prayer at this time of year is most important because what you get to do is you get to peer into his soul. I don't know if you've experienced this, but um, when you pray with someone, you learn things about them that actually didn't come up in conversation. I was praying with my wife the other day. She mentioned something in prayer, and I, I literally looked up. I said, I didn't know that. Shh, I'm praying. Just the two of us. You see, prayer allows you this, well, it's like we're children, and we come to the windowsill of, of eternity, and we get on our tippy toes, and we get to see what's going on internally. And that's the reason why I want to look at this, because when we look at this, we see the raw heart of the Lord Jesus Christ being painted over the word of God and then you get an insight into how God thinks, why God does, and how you should respond. So, if I may, I'd like you to turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22 is what some call a messianic psalm, meaning that it has... Um, strong association with the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself. In the Old Testament, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, was seen as the king to come. But embedded in the Old Testament are certain uh, scriptures, certain passages that talk about how he would suffer first. Now that dilemma of a suffering Messiah before a reigning Messiah confounded the people of Jesus Christ's day. It still confounds people today. And what you find in this passage is the suffering element or the timetable of the Savior. As I mentioned to you, it lets you peer into his inner thinking. Now, I'm going to read it in a second, but as I read it, we're going to divide up the passage, if we have time, in four segments. They're very easy words to remember. I do this so that you have a measure of an outline because poetry is a little bit difficult to sort of 
analyze without some type of structure. Now, the first word I want you to remember is Godward. In this prayer that the Lord Jesus would utter from the cross, he first addressed things Godward. That would be verses 1 through 5. Then he would actually address, and forgive me, I made this word up, but it's creature word, towards the creature. And that's verses 6 through 11. Thirdly, he will talk about things inward, and we'll spend perhaps most of our time there. And lastly, in the will of the Lord this morning, we will talk about his thoughts outward, which would be the last uh, nine verses of the passage, 22 through 31. Now, that's a formidable goal that we have, so let's get started. And I will read with you Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the groanings of, are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and you and, and were not ashamed. Now, in this first five verses in which the Lord Jesus prays, he lifts himself up in a Godward-like fashion. He addresses, he addresses uh, his God off the bat. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that was a sentiment expressed by the Lord Jesus on a weapon that was designed to suffocate its victims to death. So when I say it, I say it as if it rolls off my tongue. But you would need to enter into the moment. You would need to see the dying form of a person suspended from a, a Roman weapon of torture. As you know, the body weight, some perhaps 200 pounds of the individual would be suspended at, two, uh, at three, maybe four points in their body. They had suspension from the, uh, from the joints, or perhaps, or the hands of the wrists, and either one or two spikes driven through the feet. That was the only thing connecting him to this piece of wood. He had a little ledge, of uh, a wedge of wood, put under his feet so that he could actually fulcrum up, meaning pick himself up, because as he was suspended in this fashion, the weight of the human body would naturally ex uh, stretch the arms, but in particular what it does is it stretches the muscles between the ribs so that they cannot contract anymore, so that they cannot actually work, and thus the victim suffocates to death. He can't take a breath, which is why you put the block of wood under his feet so he can push himself up just enough to take the tension off the muscles between the ribs so he can actually take a gulp of air. Any of you ever been in a situation where you can't get enough oxygen? It's frightening, isn't it? It's frightening when you can't breathe. The other day I was on a plane flying home from I have no idea where, and I had to run to catch my flight. Now you have to understand, I grew up running, so running shouldn't be a big deal. I never had trouble breathing. Boy, I ran to catch my flight. I sat down in that seat, and I couldn't breathe. Not because I was out of shape, because I was having an asthma attack. I've never had an asthma attack in my life, but I've seen it. I've looked at it. I've treated it. 
And I'm going, I can't breathe. Here's the Savior. He's on the cross. He cannot breathe. And in order for him to say at least the first verse of the psalm, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or the rest of the chapter, all 31 verses, what a strain it would be. <laughs> that's what it would have been like. Ten days ago, that's what was happening. Thomas would have seen that. You see, he was expressing himself Godward, and he asked the question of the hour, Where are you, O oh God? He even says at the end of the paragraph, which is kind of a, a structure they use in Hebrew, it, he says, My fathers trust. They hear, you heard them. You don't hear me. Can you hear it? That's what he's saying. That's why verses 4 and 5 mention the reference to the heritage that he had. Now, the second thing you want to notice in this suffering moment with its Godward, that's Godward intended, is the phrase, the words of my groaning. Have you ever so heard someone groan in their final hours? I have. The other day I was, uh, I don't do it very often now, but I was working a shift at the ER. The patient had come in, she was going to die, and she was going to die in the next couple of hours. I'll never forget it because as she lay in the bed, she was semi-conscious, but she was conscious enough to groan. It's only literally a few feet away from my workstation, and I, I heard her, oh. And it was this sort of irregular cycle of human exhalations that sounded like death was in the air. Nothing like that to really make you turn a little bit, you know. Finally, I said to the nurse, I said, do you mind closing that door there for me? She looked at me and said, I was hoping you'd say that. It's bothering her too. Now, let me ask you something. If the groans of a dying person bother me like that, how much more would the groans of the Son of God have an effect, <coughs> have an effect on his Father in heaven? Think about your child crying unconsolably because of the pain, crying out, groaning, moaning in the middle of the night. Oh, that just rips your heart in two. Well, let me tell you, the Father in heaven had the Son, Jesus Christ, and he was groaning on a cross in his prayer. Do you think that would even, even come close to perhaps ripping the heart of God in two, if I could say it that way? The agony of that... And we gloss over that and we don't think about that. And this is all expressed in the prayer of the Lord Jesus on my cross. These are words that I could have said. These are groanings that I could have had. Look at, at, at this. Uh, we looked at his abandonment. But look, look at the contrast, if you would, in this paragraph. Verse 3. But you are holy. Now this is an amazing concept and we have to get our minds around it. 
that God has a particular quality about him that is separate, separate. It's separate not just from something, but separate unto himself. He's unique. There is no one else like him. And, and what is unique about him is his ability to actually define right and wrong. He is the source of such decision-making. We didn't come to the table and decide it was wrong to murder. That was God. We don't, we don't have the wherewithal to decide uh, about jealousy or pride. God has decided that. He has, he has the goods to, to label the standards of righteous, whoops, excuse me, righteousness, right? That woke you up, woke me up. Yesterday we were doing preaching, you know, for the young guys, for the gentlemen. And I'm awfully nervous because they're probably going to evaluate the stuffing out of me today and send me emails, you know. I'll just block them. Anyway. They'll say to me, hey, you hit the microphone, Steve. Don't do that. You know, okay. Where were we? Oh, yeah. So uh, the contrast with this holiness of God, that he has the uh, authority and right to make the rules because he is. He embodies the standard of righteousness. That's what our brother Mark read this morning, that the righteousness of God, that's in his character. It's who he is. He can make those decisions because he is that decision. And it shows up in moral decisions, moral rules, moral laws, as it were. But it's not just this character of pristine, unapproach, uh, unapproachable light. It's a judicial uh, court. It's a judicial holiness that he can not only decide what is right, he can judge when it's wrong. That's what righteousness does. That's the story of it is Romans, isn't it? The righteousness of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. It, it's, the, it's his ability to deal when it's breached. And guess what? It's been breached. And you and I, we are the ones who broke the righteousness of God. Yet God, who has the right to make righteous, to be righteous, to deal with unrighteousness, separates himself than from that which is unrighteous. So he decides it, he deals with it, and he removes himself from it. That's holiness. That's holiness separate from sin, separate from sinners unto himself, not isolated because God has this unique aspect of his character that he wants full association with the very ones that breached his righteousness. Who thinks like that? If somebody wrongs you, is that your best friend? That's who you want to go and have a, a relationship with? If somebody hurts you and damages you severely, is that the kind of person that, that you want to have for, over for your, for your next dinner party? Is that it? You want to go hang out with that person? No, you generally want to strangle them to death. And I'm just kidding. We can remove that from the tape. Okay. Now, the point that I'm trying to make to you is that the love of God has such great weight in his person that although he is righteous, he will do everything in his power, and he has all power, to deal with the unrighteous scenario of the perpetrator so that the perpetrator can actually become a proper son. That's the story of the cross, isn't it? It's a beautiful story. 
So God takes his all knowledge, his all ability to figure things out, and he comes up with this incredible plan that I cannot remove what is done. I cannot pretend it didn't happen, that righteousness was breached. (coughs) I cannot remove that at all. But I can do something for the judicial side of the law. I can pay for their crimes. Uh, A debt was incurred against the court of heaven. I'll just pay the debt. And what is the debt, O God? Well, the debt is being separated from me. And thus the Lord Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Separated from God. Did you know in this morning's meeting, there was at least six times that somebody in this room, either in song or word, referenced a concept from Psalm 22. Somebody did. In song or word. Sometime, and once it was in prayer. I counted because I was asking the Lord to show, exact, show me exactly what I should speak about this morning. Now, don't, don't, don't worry. There were several things on the burner, but this was one of them. Now, having said that to you, I wanted you to see the Godward expression of Christ on these moments of agony on the cross, suffocating to death. And he would immediately say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, you hear my groaning. Oh, and you're far. You have abandoned me. I cannot find you. In the daytime, that would be before the three hours of darkness. You're not there. And then it's darkness and you're still not there. Oh, where are you? Where are you? Do you know what it's like to be abandoned? To be totally isolated because all have left you? That's the Lord Jesus. And that's what he was praying about on the cross. And that's what he was agonizing over at that moment. These are, you, you and I are, are looking into the windowsill of the soul of Christ and we're seeing it in agony before you. You and I, we watch on holy ground. Isn't that amazing? Now let's look at the second aspect of the Savior as, I believe, he prayed on the cross. It says in verse 6, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. Those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip. They shake their heads saying, Ha! He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him now. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you hear the sarcasm? you hear all that? But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. Trouble is near. For there is none to help. Now, in this section where he he talks a little bit more in reference to creature, he, again, you get to peer into his heart of maybe what he's sensing about him and and the activity around him. And I'll take you to Matthew in just a minute and show you the uncanny parallels here. But I want you to notice the very first thing he says, and there will be three separate points here, but the first thing is this comment about being the worm. If you look it up in your Hebrew lexicon, it actually could be translated crimson maggot. That's kind of disgusting. A crimson grub. Are you familiar with grubs? They're little things that look like I don't know what God was thinking when he made them. I really don't. 
they're just like slimy and they inch across your sidewalk and they're incredibly hard to kill. And, and they, you know, if you squash them, they squirm away and you can, if you step on them, you think your foot should be totally transplanted. It's nasty. Now he selects this term and he says this, I do not even count as a man. I'm a worm. I'm a kind of worm, and this is in, uh, written and recorded in several places, but the first place I found it is in Spurgeon's work on Psalm 22. He selects a worm, a grub, a maggot, that they were used to be crushed so that it would produce a red dye, hence crimson grub, and then they would take it and use it to dye garments that were actually made for nobility. Now, the images are so profound. He shed his own blood so that garments of righteousness could be made and then put upon you and I, who are now declared to be a royal priesthood. You see it? Royalty, or royal priesthood means nobility, royalty. That's what you are. This is what he's saying. And in his state of crying out to God and being abandoned and isolated, of, of, of dealing with the holiness of God, he then says, I have become lower than human life form. Do you imagine, can you imagine how much this bothered the angels? The angels who saw what, what Lucifer did and had the coup attempt in heaven. The angels who saw that what man, how man was made lower than themselves. And then Christ entering into the human race, lower than the angels, then takes a place below man. You can't get any lower than that. I've often wondered if the angels went, oh, that's unbelievable. You and I, we act like it's a little fact we learn in Sunday school just to be recited when we do the Sunday Easter dinner. That's not right. That's not right at all. And what we get to see here is a little look into the heart of the Lord Jesus as he pours his heart out before God in heaven. I'm a worm. I'm not even a man. Can you hear him? Breathless, uh, struggling to get air and oxygen. And this is what he would say. Why? Because these are the words that could be my words. That's what my sin does. It rips in two. Look, look at what it says next. He, he felt the contemptibility of the moment. If you look here, a reproach of men, verse 6b, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. Have you ever been ridiculed? Ever been laughed at in public? Ha, 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 that's you. Oh, you're such a loser. You ever hear that? I grew up in the 80s. That's what we said all the time. And we had no problem putting you down. Right? All the millennialists today, you don't say that. I do. Right? That's how I grew up. I heard it all the time. Now, turn to Matthew. You've you got to read this. This is amazing. Matthew, in the passage that I'll refer you to, is chapter 27. <coughs> chapter 27. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse um, 32. And I'll read probably about 10 verses, so, so bear with me as we read through this section uh, together. Now, as they came out, that's out of the praetorium, uh, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. 
Him they compelled to bear his cross, and when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of the skull, what a gruesome title, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. Now, what was that? That was meant to be a sedative and narcotic so that he can endure the rest of the torture. But he, once he tasted it, he would not drink. No, sedis, no sedatives for him, no numbing of the pain for him. And then they crucified him. Very short verb, but very profound torture. And divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And they divided, excuse me, and they divided their, their, my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. We'll revisit that in a minute. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over him, uh, over his head, the accusation written against him, this is the king of the Jews. Do you hear that sarcasm in that? Sure, this is the king of the Jews. Yeah, this is what this king is. He's on a cross. Then the two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left, and those who passed by, blasphemy. There's going to be a different verb for each one blaspheming him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Can you hear that little whiny tone in that? Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking. So we had blaspheming in 39. Now we have mocking with the scribes and elders saying, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Oh, well, you sound really smart. Right? That's, that's the idea. He says, he cannot say, if he is king of Israel. <laughs> Can you hear them? I kind of think they're British. Sorry. Let them come down from the cross now and save himself. You know, you know that kind of attitude. If he is king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. <laughs> like that's going to happen. He trusted in God. And that's what the Lord Jesus was saying in Psalm 22. That's why they made this comment. Let him deliver him now, if God will have him. Obviously not. For he said, I am the son of God. What a farce. What a liar. What a despicable man. We are doing the right thing by putting him on the cross. Blasphemers deserve to die. We are defending the honor of God. That's what they're saying. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Look at this. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. All those three hours, at the end of that time, he quotes this. Interesting, isn't it? Now, go back to Psalm 22. Now you can see how it was going down. Verse 7, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip. They shake their head. <coughs> And they shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do you hear that? That sour, bitter, sarcastic, critical spirit, that anger-filled soul, see I'm right, you Jesus person. Now, that hurts you and I when somebody does that to you and I, when somebody comes up and tells you the what for and accuses you and, and makes fun of you in your worst situation. Ha, see, he's sinning. He's, got, he's judged like that. See, that's why that happened. You ever hear that? People cruelly say that one to another, and I would say even Christians do that. And the pain that you feel in that moment 
is even, it's just a mere microcosm of the type of pain that would have been in this moment. And in Christ's case, he had no a shred of anything being foul with God. It was totally blasphemous to hear that. And, and yet it, it, he would feel the sting of those words like you would feel the sting of those words are the same words given to you. That's that, that, those are daggers in the heart, how those words sink in deep. And you and I get to stand at the windowsill of heaven and listen to him pray and hear how he is agonizing over what mere man, the creature, could do to the Son of God. Something's wrong with this picture. And then he references verse 9. We don't have time for this, but he basically says, even from a child I trusted you. You taught me that. And now I'm a man, he says, and you have been my God from, my, from birth. Here I am calling, oh God, where are you? And so it sounds like the ridicule of these uh, chief priests and Pharisees was right. If God will have him, ha, ha, ha. Oh, and the Savior, he's agonized. Oh God, where are you? I need you. Oh, hear me. It was but hours before he prays John 17. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Father, you and I are one, and, and what we have and the love that you and I have, I want to give to these disciples, and not just to these disciples. I want to give to those who would believe in them as a result of their testimony, because as you are and I are one, so I want them to be one with us. And now, hours later, literally 12 hours later, he's in this situation, and he's totally removed from the presence of God. What can explain that? My sin and his holiness. Your sin and his holiness. Somebody had to do this to bring the two back together. And this is what it sounds like. So he cries outward, or uh, Godward. He cries creature word. But I want you to look in verse eight or 12 about the inward. This is really interesting. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Oh God, oh God. Can you hear it? This is an inward look. And I want you to just, just, just feel the moment with me. As he prays, as this, these words could no doubt, undoubtedly fall from his lips in the moment of my payment of my sin, his suffering. He looks around and he's terrorized by the ferocious. He's terrorized by the ferocious. What is that? Well, those are the strong bulls of Bashan. Now, those were bulls raised in the hill country of Gilead. And, and, and what happened there is that these were, were uh, prize fighting animals. They were designed to kill, right? And so their horns were their chief weapon. Now, you look over, just look over one verse, verse 21. Look at how he references this. Save me from the lion's mouth. Again, this is a poetic device in this paragraph. And from the horns of the wild oxen. Oxen, he's saying this. 
I am afraid those bulls will run me through with their horns. I am afraid that's what's going to happen. I can see it. It's terrorizing the Lord Jesus in this sense. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean that he had fear in the sense of, of human fear or fearing man, but it's the gravity of the moment that's upon him. He's going to be, it's like to him, he's going to be gored through. They look at me with their mouths, you know? They're like ravenous wolves. <laughs> salivating at the prey right in front of them. And that's why the language is used of a raging and roaring lion. The word ra uh, raging means ravenous. A ravenous is, is, is an animal so hungry, almost as if they're rabid in terms of having rabies. So, so uh, uh, out of their mind, like a mob-like mentality. And, and, and if that would scare you, would it not? If you were caught in a crowd and there's this mad, ravenous sort of hungriness of the crowd, uh, uh, seeking to destroy anything in its path. If you were in that crowd, you would fear. The Lord Jesus is saying, I am in this moment too. And I can hear their loud uh, uh, screams in my ears. We have um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, Hollywood will show the moment of where the actor is standing before the animal. And, and all of, all of the, the country, all of the forest suddenly shuts down and is silent. Hear the Savior, the roar of hell, the roar of Satan, the roar of the demons, the roar of the judging hand of God, screaming into his ear. Let me tell you something. My Savior was praying this. Look at what else he says inward. He says, <coughs> I'm poured out like water. That's an interesting thing. Whenever you pour water out of a cup, do you ever put it back in in the same amount in the same way? You know, if I had a glass up here, I knocked it over, it went on the carpet. Do I actually suck all that up out of the carpet and put it back in there and it look exactly like it did before with the same amount? No, it's gone. It's spit. It's over. You can't reproduce that again. If you do, you'd have to get fresh water. Once it's spent, it's gone. He's saying, I'm being spent, and it's all going to be poured out. There's nothing that's going to be left. There's some imagery to the drink offering, no doubt, but, they all, but the drink offering is, it's all poured out. It's all gone. You can't put it back in. He's saying, I'm being totally spent. Look at this. My bones are out of joint. Now, this is interesting, all right? So in order for you to put somebody on the cross, you lay the, the cross on the ground, and you then put the person down on it, people standing above him, uh, arms out to the side, feet in the middle. And then, of course, you impale them with the spike, somewhere around six to eight inches long, which means it would take a little bit of time to actually get the whole spike into the, uh, to the piece of wood and thus suspend him. So if each pounding would have been incredibly uh, uh, painful. Then once you get them uh, attached to the cross, you then have to slide it to the hole. And then once you get to the hole... You get the end of the cross in the hole, and then you tip it up. And you can imagine what would happen. Your body is not attached at all points to the cross, just in about three or four points. And so when you slide that cross in, and they didn't do it gently, it kind of go over, over, and then boom, and the weight of the cross would thru be thrust forward against the other wall of the hole. And so the person on the cross would suddenly go like this. Ugh! Now, it turns out that's the exact trajectory in which you can get bilateral shoulder dislocations that the ball, the socket, or excuse me, the ball of the humerus, which is right here, gets 
outside the socket. It moves in front of the socket. Now, I don't know if you ever had your shoulder dislocation, a, sh what, a shoulder dislocated, but I would just want to show you what the patient looks like when they come in with a shoulder out of joint. Right? That's exactly what they look like. And within seconds, I go, let me get you something for pain because I can't talk to them. You're screaming so loud. Now, if you had two at the same time, that's one thing, but listen to this. Nobody put them back in place. They stayed out of socket for the entire time he was on the cross. That means that for six hours, as he would breathe, which is roughly 12 times a minute in a normal human body, he would have to pick himself up, and that out-of-socket humeral head would rub against the tissues, and he would endure excruciating bilateral shoulder pain 12 times a minute. 60 minutes in an hour times six hours. Do the math. That's the Lord Jesus. And so when he says, when he says to you, my bones are out of joint, it's just not like figurative. I think there is an element there where he was describing, because his clothes were taken from him, that was literal. I think he was describing some of this in, in graphic detail. Look at what it says next, and I'll have to end here. It says, uh, my strength is dried up like potsherd. What's that mean? That means you take a piece of pottery, you put it in the kiln, and, and perhaps for whatever reason, a piece of it broke off, or maybe a piece from the prior potter, a piece of pottery you'd put in there. And when you pull it out and you maybe gather the fragments, it's dehydrated to the point that it's unusable. And thus, he says, my tongue clings to my mouth. Have you ever been in that moment where you're so thirsty, you just can't seem to pull that tongue off the top of your mouth, and when you do, it rips the tissue. This, your lips have been so cracked, you're, they're, they're so parched, and, you, oh, just, uh, and your lips can barely move. This is the Savior. Look at this. Dogs have surrounded me. It's like the, the mad dog syndrome, like a, a pack of wolves, snarling, circling, circling, looking for the right moment, waiting for the right moment to uh, strike and, and take a kill. Now look at this. They pierced my hands and feet. Now you understand that the Lord Jesus on the cross, he would, he would have a guy on his left and on his right, and they were talking to him, and they're struggling, struggle for air too. And so as he would perhaps look to one, you know, head hanging down, look to the one on the right, in his vision, he would see a dangling extremity, right? People are most frightened when they see something impaling their body. Did you know that? guy comes in and he's got a, um, a rebarb piece of wire run through his leg. It's probably going to be fine, but it's so horrific to see impalement of your body, especially when you're conscious. And he would see that. He would see it as, as he looked. He would see my hand. And because of the, the moment of dehydration as well as the moment of, of breathlessness, his head would dangle down. And he would see the impalement of his feet. Oh, that would be so frightening, so gripping to you, don't you think? And now I imagine that as he looked down, he would see his nakedness. You see, sin in the garden brought nakedness to the surface. Sin exposed our nakedness in such a way that it became an embarrassment. And now at the payment for our sin, our nakedness is being exposed on the Savior.
And as he looked down, he would be able to just see all of those ribs in his chest. And I think the Lord Jesus was perhaps a fairly muscular fella because it seems like he was a carpenter and maybe he, he had done that even up to the age of 30. Now, carpenters in that day were not just wood, worked with wood, they worked with masonry and they worked with brick and they worked with stone and they worked with all kinds of, of various um, uh, 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 raw materials. So the Lord Jesus, he, he probably was pretty stout, you know what I mean? So for his ribs to show, that had to be a tremendous shearing force on his body. Now, why do I tell you all this? Our time is gone, and I'm sorry. I tell you all this because this is just a sampling of what the Lord Jesus would have prayed. It was Godward. It was creature word. It was inward. Now, there's more to it. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's more to it. I want you to see the content of, how, of what the Savior prayed, of what was on the mind of the Lord Jesus. I want you to see the agony of the moments and how he poured out that to God in heaven. And when you pray, I would like to encourage you to be able to pour out the agony of your heart to your Father in heaven, number one. Number two, I want you to see this great Redeemer of yours. I want you to see him as clearly as I've tried to describe to you the suffering of a weapon of torture. It was only 10 days ago. It was fresh in the mind of Thomas. It was fresh in the mind of the disciples. And when he showed them those scars, what do you, what do you think ran back through their heads? I think every moment that was described just now. I want you to see the Savior. Number three, I want you to respond to the Savior. You see, I have found in my Christian life that I lose track of the cross, don't you? I lose track of what it means for the Holy One to bear away my sin. I lose track of what it means for the Son of God to suffer where our brother, I think David, read it this morning. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Crush him. I want you to respond to the cross. I want you to remember how much you've been forgiven. I want you to see the agony of Jesus Christ as he paid for your sin. And I want you to never forget what it meant for you, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. He who forgets how much he's been forgiven loves little. But he who remembers he who has been forgiven of much loves much. Which leads me to the final closing thing. Somewhere in this room, somebody may have never understood what Jesus Christ did for you 1988 years ago plus 10. That was not an ordinary death. And I might add, it wasn't an ordinary resurrection. That, that what he accomplished on those moments where God rejected his own son, his own boy, was exactly the moment that you deserved. And God, in his judicial reign, 
in his omnipotence, he made it so that he would bear the cost of it all so that you might bear the joy of being with God. And Jesus even said that. He said it's the joy, what, what is eternal life is to know you, O God. Now, if you sit on that threshold, that demarcation, that line of decision today, if you sit there and you are wondering, is this Christianity really all that it's cracked up to be? Does it really matter? I have to tell you, it not only matters, it's vital. I have to tell you that at this moment, when you can see with clarity how Christ substituted himself on your behalf, you have a decision to make. And your decision will be a determinant of your entire eternal destiny. God says it this way. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will suffer your own condemnation. Christ suffered incredible condemnation, your condemnation. It's an offer that he gives to all mankind. He says, whosoever will may come. You come, and you, you come before him. And, and the, the step at this moment of, of crossing the threshold is one that he has made so simplistically easy. And what it is, it's a belief in reception by receiving Christ as your Savior. Oh God, I see what I am. I see what you've done. And I don't want to keep that off in the refrigerator or the cupboard of some distant place. I want that to be my reality. I receive you today. Let's pray. Dear Father, we have taken a moment just to look at, well, just three things about the prayer of the Lord Jesus. This was no ordinary prayer. This is the prayer of a dying soul who suffocated, who was suffocated to death for my sins. And it wasn't just an isolated body. It was a soul that was bearing sin for me. It was a soul that was in agony. In all those words he said, in all the frightening, terrorizing elements of the hour, those would have been mine. Those would have been Words that I could have easily articulated and uttered. But you saved me from that so that those words will never fall from my lips. Oh God, thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name.